51 through 62. God's word beginning in verse 51 of Luke 9 says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, for his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. O Lord, would you make us fit? Would you work in us a love and delight in you, even as we hear your word this morning, that we would realize that all these other good things are nothing in comparison to you, the greatest thing, the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, the joy that ultimately satisfies. Lord, we come to you needing begging to hear from you in your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, a 22-year-old man, who we should call Jim, came to trust Christ earlier in life, but he'd been rebelling and living the way he wanted since. One grandfather kept calling him back to a holy life, but nothing he could say could convince his grandson Jim to follow the Lord. Jim, rather, moved in with his girlfriend, had a child and enjoyed smoking pot with her and the rest of the extended family until not too long ago. As his toddler moved across the room, Jim saw his child go through a nice cloud of pot smoke. And in that instant, he realized, this is not right. I need to change. And so he got up and he told his girlfriend, this is not right. We cannot be living this way. This is not the way God wants us to live. To which she scoffed and said, you can't pick and choose. We're living together. They're both wrong. And he's like, you're right. So he went in his room, packed the bags, and left. She couldn't believe it. She thought he was abandoning her. But he was saying, look, I'm not abandoning you. I'm seeking to be faithful to God. And to be faithful to him, we first must move apart, get married, and then raise this child. You know, in an odd twist, a smoky haze brought instant clarity. And through it, he saw to truly trust Christ is also to faithfully follow him. Since then, his life has not really improved by any human standards, but rather has gotten much worse. His family hates him and mocks him because here's this religious guy who just a few weeks ago was smoking right along with him. Not only did he stop smoking pot, but he destroyed over $1,000 worth of resources and tools used to do it. Not only that, but his co-workers, as he stops to pray at lunch, mock him and whisper all kinds of cruel and harsh things they'll do to his girlfriend. Yet, he keeps on. But for many Christians today, we have to wonder, did Jim maybe make a mistake? Isn't salvation free? Now, maybe Jim was giving up some of the abundance life by cohabitating and smoking pot, but 
did it really matter? I mean, since Jesus gives us salvation by grace, couldn't he have just kind of eased into this faithfulness, lessened his pot smoking maybe, and, you know, he knew his intentions, he was going to marry her. Why this radical cutting off? Is this really necessary at all? You know, I think he, many would think as a, one woman I talked to, she's saying, look, I'm a Christian, but I don't really do everything the Bible says. And in her mind, this was no contradiction. It's, you can't be serious. You know, religion is good, as we're told, in small doses. You can't take it all. And yet, what does Jesus think about this? As we look at these verses this morning, we see that Jesus actually gives very harsh words about what it means to trust him. And he uses the language of following him. And as he explains this, we see more of his mission as well. If you have a bulletin, you can see the things that we glean from this passage. First, in verses 51 through 53, we see that Jesus is aiming for the cross. Then in verses 54 through 56, Jesus' current mission is one of mercy, not judgment that we'll see the disciples want to call down. And lastly, Jesus calls us to forsake all for him. Well, beginning in verse 51, though, we see this transition. Luke gives this theological statement because he says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go through Jerusalem. What does it mean for Jesus to be taken up? Well, as I read it first, I thought, well, he's talking about Jesus going to the cross. That's even what I entitled this section. Except if you read the Old Testament in Greek, it was translated in Greek a little bit before Jesus' lifetime. They call it the Septuagint, the LXX. It says in 2 Kings 2, 9-11, that Elijah was taken up. It uses the same word. Or if you read 1 Timothy three sixteen, it's this hymn praising Jesus. And it says, he was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up, same word, in glory. And thus, though, my first thought was that what is being said here is Jesus needs to go up to the cross. Rather, what it's referring to is Jesus ascending into the glory with God the Father, his ascension after his death and resurrection. However, though the cross is not the specific reference, it's what has to be gone through first before he is taken up. Why do I say that? Well, notice what it says. It says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. To set one's face is a Hebrew idiom for being doggedly determined to do something. You know, we may say something like, nothing could deter him. Or, he was a man on a mission. He's a person that has one goal, and that goal causes everything else to move to the side. Jesus had his face set to go to Jerusalem. Now, I said this is a theological statement because it's not necessarily a travel itinerary. Right now, he's in Samaria, but as you go through Luke, we'll then see him in Luke chapter 10 down in Bethany, which is really kind of on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And then even before he ends up at the cross, he ends up in northern Israel. You know, the point here is not that Jesus is on a geographical distance, it's that his mission is towards the cross. Thus, though he whether goes east or west, north or south, he is always doing everything with the purpose of the cross in Jerusalem before him. We'll see that in later verses in Luke 13, 33. Jesus declares, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Or flip over, we can all turn to Luke 
chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, verse 31, we see another one of these things where Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem. In Luke 18, 31, it says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Well, part of the everything would include the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 5-6 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus, by saying he's set for Jerusalem, is saying he's set to go to the cross. And thus, Jesus did not accidentally end up in Jerusalem. This was not some detour, that he had some other mission, and somehow the religious leaders and Pilate ruined his plan. Not at all. Jesus' purpose, his goal, his determined destination, was to go to the cross, to fulfill all prophecy, to redeem mankind, to please His Father. And as I thought about it, it made me wonder, what is my, what is your face set toward? We can be doggedly determined to get something. That's not always bad. Maybe you're on a trip and you're, see, 15 miles to Wichita Falls, and you know, I need that bathroom. And you're determined. No detours. We're getting home. I got to get there. And yet, we can also be doggedly determined in our selfishness, in our sin. You might be selfishly aiming to get that last dessert before your sibling gets it. You might be doggedly determined to go out and buy that outfit that's going to attract everyone's attention to you, or to get that promotion or to obtain some possession because you want everyone to notice you. You could be doggedly determined to find something on the internet because, oh, if I can just see that or watch that, it'll satisfy me. And yet, Jesus' determination was not for anything that would serve Him. It was about serving us. It was His deep and costly love. It was His faithfulness to His Father that called Him, that set His face towards Jerusalem. And so as He's going, He needs to go through Samaria. Now, in verse 52, we see this, that He even sends messengers before Him. And if you look at this in other wording in Luke, we see that this is more than just setting up accommodation, so that's a major part of it. It's also setting up for him to come and preach, to tell them of the good news. Jesus wants to tell him that he's the king who's come, that the gospel of the kingdom is here. Now, as we read verse 52, many of us don't make any no- much note of it. Oh, Jesus is going to Samaria, no big deal. But for Jesus' disciples, for almost every single one of them, This would be a scandal. This would be outrageous. Jesus wants to go tell the Samaritans about the good news, about forgiveness, about restoration. How could he ever do that? You see, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. This was a centuries-old conflict, way deeper than the Hatfields and McCoys. Who were the Samaritans? They were half-breeds. They were of Jewish blood and Gentile blood. But beyond that, they had different religious views. They said, we shouldn't worship at Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is, and that temple. No, we should worship on Mount Gerizim. 
Not only that, they said, really, the only scripture we have that is from God is the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Along with racial and theological differences, there were hostility because of actions that they had done to one another. In 128 BC, the Jews had gone up to Mount Gerizim and destroyed the Samaritan's temple. Then about 35 years before Jesus came, Samaritans snuck in at night to the temple in Jerusalem and spread bones all throughout the temple. Well, for a Jew to come in contact with a dead body was to make them ritually unclean. So now their whole temple is ritually unclean, and whoever cleans it up is also going to become unritually clean. This wasn't first century toilet papering. This was cruel, vindictive way of jabbing them in the eye. And so, as we read earlier in John 4, Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with one another. They won't even share a glass from the same well. If Jews were going and they were pious, they would take an extra day to journey around Samaritan towns because they didn't even want to walk through and get the dust on their feet. But where does Jesus want to go preach? To the Samaritans. You know, Jesus having his face set for the cross means that he came for all, not just the Jews. And so Jesus is going and he doesn't let centuries of conflict get in his way. And yet what happens here? Well, verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Jesus going towards Jerusalem was for them the critical point of their conflict. Jesus is saying, you've got to go worship down there. Now, that was not necessarily Jesus' point. We read this earlier in John 4, where Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman, and he says, look, it's not here, it's not in Jerusalem where you'll worship, but rather you will worship the Father. Jesus said to her in John 4, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He then goes on and says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You don't need to be in a specific location to worship, whether that be Mecca, Jerusalem, Gerizim. You don't need a certain type of building, a temple, a cathedral, You don't need a certain type of architecture. You don't need a certain style of worship or dance. What Jesus says you need for true worship is the spirit and the truth. And Jesus is clear the truth is him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And with the truth, you need the spirit, both the Holy Spirit and a spirit that flows forth in praise. True worship involves the head, the truth, and the heart, the spirit. You know, a lot of people can show up and they have all the right theology. They sing all the right types of songs, and yet their heart is far from them. And God doesn't want worship that is just merely about getting everything right. On the other hand, many people are all about, it's about the spirit, it's about an emotional experience. It doesn't really matter what we're saying as long as we mean it. And Jesus says, no, it's not just being zealous for the Lord. You need to have knowledge. True worship weds heart and head, truth and spirit. And Jesus came to restore such true and spirit-filled worship. And yet here, the Samaritans don't want anything to do with that yet. It's worth noting, just because we reach across the aisle, so to speak, doesn't mean there's instant reconciliation. 
Jesus reaches across and they still rebuke him. They don't want anything to do with him. And while it takes two people to tango, it only takes one to quarrel. You know, we can seek peace with people, but that doesn't mean they want it themselves. And so we should be eager to pursue that peace, but we have to be honest to realize that sometimes it doesn't happen. And that sometimes hostilities are not overcome with just one gesture or action. Yet, though Jesus is willing to reach out to these Samaritans, offer them the good news of the gospel and mercy, what do the disciples want to do? Judgment. Let them have it. We know about these Samaritans. Call down fire. And yet we see in verses 54 through 56 that Jesus' current mission is mercy. Look down again at verse 54. And when James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, fire coming down really has kind of two different illusions or experiences in the Old Testament. You may think of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God called down fire in judgment. Or in 2 Kings 1, where King Ahab is going to arrest the prophet Elijah. And so he sends soldiers, and they kind of mockingly say, Hey, man of God, Ahab wants you to come with us. And Ahab said, or sorry, Elijah says, Well, if I'm a man of God, then may fire come down and consume you. And it does. Oh, maybe he is a man of God. Judgment of fire coming down. But there's also another Old Testament experience of fire coming down, and that's God's blessing. His awareness is showing his presence. Thus, when Solomon dedicates the temple, what happens? Fire comes down and consumes the sacrifices. Yet James and John here seem like they're wanting this fire of judgment. They realize rejecting Jesus is serious, and they're zealous for God's honor. Yet as we just noted, a zeal for honoring God apart from knowledge isn't pleasing to God. You know, our worship is not just what we do in this room. Our worship is shown through our everyday actions. And in our everyday actions, we need truth and spirit, zeal and love. And thus Jesus rebukes them. Come on, let's go. We're going to another village. Because Jesus did not first come to judge. He first came to to bring mercy. Now it's not that he isn't saying there won't be judgment. He will say in Luke chapter 10. If you look over to the next chapter. Luke chapter 10 verses 13 to 15. Woe to you Chorazin. Woe to you Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago. Sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? you shall be brought down to Hades. So Jesus promises words of judgment, but now is not that time. You know, Jesus' words are really cutting against two common distortions that people have about God. You know, the first is God's kind of scene of this crank, old grandpa sitting on his front porch, get off my lawn. He's always looking, watching to see if you're going to make one slight misstep, your bicycle tire is just going to hit the edge of the grass and He's going to let you have it. He's mean, he's vindictive, and you never know what's going to light his fuse. Well, the other extreme is God's another type of grandpa. He's the one across the street. Oh, you ran across my yard, you tore up my flowers. Here, have some candy, I don't care. Oh, you're mean, you're bullying all the other kids. Come here, let me give you a hug. I don't care. I love you all. I accept you all. I never say anyone's doing anything wrong. And yet, it's not that God's all judgment, a crank ready to blow up at you and it's not that he's all love it's that he's both he's judging 
and he's loving. And yet now is the time of mercy because God is long-suffering and patient. Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 3 because in this, in these verses, we see Peter responding to this idea that, well, God says he's going to come judge, but nothing's happening. Maybe God isn't really going to judge, people are saying. And yet notice what 2 Peter chapter 3 says, beginning in verse 9, and ending in verse 9 for that matter, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's desire is for people to repent. He takes no delight in judgment. And yet, it's clear that the judgment is coming. And so back to our passage in Luke. Jesus is not denying judgment, but he's telling James and John, look, now's not the time. Now's the time of what I preached in Luke 6. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Call them to the Father of love and forgiveness before they will only know the Father of judgment and wrath. And we see this often in life. People misinterpret people's actions and their intentions. I was a math teacher for many years. In my first job, I had a math department head named Merle Picconi. Now, if you met Mrs. Picconi at the grocery store or you met her in the neighborhood, she was the sweetest, kindest grandmother you ever would have met. If you met Mrs. Perconi in her classroom, you would have met the serious, most strict lady you thought the world had. She once said, hey, Jeremy, just call me Merle. No big deal. First meeting, said Merle something. Afterwards, she called me in to her room and she said, I said you can call me Merle. Don't call me that in front of anyone ever again. Yes, ma'am, Miss Perconi. Her instructions to me were, I know this is your first year. What you need to do is never see the students let you smile till after Thanksgiving. I thought that was an urban legend. Some teachers hold that philosophy. It's the view that if they see any kindness in you, they're going to think they can run all over you. Now, it worked on some level to keep order and fear in her classroom, but I took a different approach. I can smile at my students. I can show kindness. But then I often had to tell my students, don't. Don't confuse my friendliness, my kindness, with that I won't hold you to the rules. You know, people could take either extreme. Well, oh, Miss Picone is so mean. I bet I never want to see her outside of the classroom. Not true at all. She was very kind. You could even call her Merle if no one was around. But if you saw me, oh, look, Mr. Molikoff, he says hi to the students in the hallway. He's kind. He asks how your life's going up. Oh, he's going to let us walk over. Class is going to be chaos. No. Don't excuse, don't misunderstand someone's actions for all their intentions. And Jesus is saying here, yes, there's love, there's mercy. Yes, there's going to be judgment. But now, right now, disciples, even for us today, is time of mercy. And thus, Peter later has to warn, look, don't confuse God's delay, his patience, for a lack of justice. And so Jesus is wanting them to know the truth. And the truth about his mercy is offered us, but he also wants us to know the truth of what it means to follow him. And we see that in the end of this section, verses 57 through 62, where Jesus calls us to forsake all. And so back in Luke 9, verse 57, Jesus is walking along the road. This is where he often had conversations. And we see three different interactions of people coming. 
Now, it's interesting, in none of them are we given many details about the individuals because it's not about the individuals per se. It's rather about what it looks like for any individual to follow Jesus. And the first person comes, and he's quite, quite clear. Lord, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Well, this sounds great. I mean, just imagine if someone comes in and goes, I want to join the church. I'll do anything the church says. Well, most of us today, modern evangelicalism, well, great, that's wonderful. But Jesus replies with a warning. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Well, why isn't he getting him to sign a card? Why isn't he getting him to say, well, great, you can now write this date down in your Bible and never worry about your salvation again. You are committed this day. Well, because Jesus is wanting them to realize the cost of following him. And what is Jesus saying? Well, basically he's saying, look, if you follow me, you're going to be a stranger in exile in this world. I mean, just consider the verses before. He went to Lodge in Samaria and what? There was no place there for him to lay his head. He's alluding to Hebrews 11, that we are these strangers in exiles. And if Jesus is our one we're following, then our home is not here, it's in heaven. And we have to realize that, yes, there might come suffering from following him, even rejection. Well, Jesus then turns, verse 59, and now he's giving the commands. He tells the man, follow me. Well, this man replies, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Well, honoring one's father and mother, that was not kind of this mere Jewish cultural commitment. This was etched in stone, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. In fact, Honoring one's father and mother was the supreme level of religious devotion for Jews. Yet what does Jesus say? Well, let the dead go bury their own dead, but go proclaim the kingdom of God. What? Is Jesus heartless? Is he cruel? Is he saying, look, fifth commandment isn't really matter anymore? Well, not at all. Jesus' point is that nothing, not even something as significant as family obligations, should hinder our immediate following of him. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What Jesus is doing is he's taking the highest level of earthly devotion that we should have, family. And he's saying, compared to that, your love for me should be so much greater Compared to the love you have for your spouse, your children, your relatives, your parents, your love for me should be way greater than that. And yet Christians, we have a hard time with this. There's a well-known pastor a few years ago. His son had grown up in his home, and yet now he was living a rebellious life. His son had been baptized in the church, but now he was clearly not following the Lord. So what did the church do? Well, Along with the pastor, they said, well, look, we have to be faithful to Christ no matter the cost. And in Matthew 18, it tells us if someone has sinned, go talk to them privately. So they did that. He didn't listen. So they kept following the instructions of Matthew 18. Jesus commands that we ultimately, if someone is saying, I'm following Christ but living in sin and they won't repent, we end up removing them from the church. And I'm sure it broke this father's heart to do it. But though he's the pastor, he led the church in this hard love. And yet online, you could read people with scathing, even Christians saying, how could this pastor do this? Doesn't he love his son? What kind of pastor is this? Well, we should have had the opposite response. 
what kind of pastor is this who would overlook a son's love because, oh, well, I, I love him too much. I can't do this. No, his devotion to his God has to be greater to that of his family. He couldn't turn a blind eye to sin. Rather, Jesus is demanding that our love for him should be greater than our love for any earthly family. Now, if we don't keep that main principle in view, we'll draw all kinds of unintended meanings from Jesus' words here. Jesus is not saying you can't go to the funeral of an unbeliever. That's not his point at all. He's not saying, well, you don't really need to care for your parents. The fifth commandment should still be followed. Rather, the issue is one of priority and comparison. The greatest priority in our life should be Christ. And family, though great, is a secondary commitment. You know, that's why he says, go proclaim the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom, we're given a new family. A family where he's our father. And we're brothers and sisters. Because we're united to Christ. And so that family takes priority. Not to the neglect of this family, but to the overall commitment over it. Well, then we see a third conversation in verse 61, because there Jesus calls another man says, I'll follow you. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And yet again, Jesus rebukes and says, no, don't put your hand to the plow and look back. Now, what's going on here? Well, it's similar, but it's alluding to something. We're not going to turn there, but in 1 Kings 19, this is where Elijah, the great prophet, calls Elisha to follow him. Same, similar language. And what does Elisha he say? He says, well, let me first go say goodbye. Well, so wait. This guy's just doing what Elisha did. And yet Jesus says, no, don't look back. Now let's consider first what this analogy is saying. You know, Palestine had very rocky soil. And as you're plowing, if you're constantly looking back, the plow is going to soon hit a rock. And it's going to be not just deterred, but probably overturned with you with it. If you're going to make a straight following of the Lord, you can't keep looking back. And everyone in that time would have understood that analogy. And Jesus is saying, look, spiritually, if you always got an eye back over your shoulder on the slavery you were set free from, you're not going to faithfully follow him. You know, we see that not just with this, but examples. Lot's wife, she's freed from this horrible city, but what does she do? She looks back. Or Israel, after they're released from slavery in Egypt, it's not far into the wilderness before they're saying, oh, why couldn't we go back and have the onions? They were so good. The slavery that they had just been released of seemed so appetizing again. You know, we can't faithfully and fully follow Christ if we constantly have one eye glancing back over our shoulder at our prior life. Now, the point here is not that once you look back, once you stumble, you can't follow Christ anymore. That's not the point at all, because even in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that Peter would look at the cost of these people saying you are with Jesus and he'd look over his shoulder. And the plow would not keep going straight. But Jesus then says, you'll be restored again. You know, I don't know about you, 
I can start out the morning, oh, I'm eager to serve the Lord. Two minutes later, I'm eager to serve myself. Then I recommitted, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to go out and win the world for Christ. And then five minutes later, I'm trying not to choke a kid. And then it's this back and forth. And the point is not that to be fit for God's kingdom, we can't ever sin. But it's a look, if we're going to serve the Lord, we have to constantly put the blinders on and go, no, I'm looking straight ahead. I'm looking to the cross, looking to heaven, looking at Christ. And I'm going to do my best by His grace to plow a straight line toward Him. And why does he bring up Elisha? Because he's saying, look, look at the greatest commitments in the Old Testament, the two greatest prophets besides Moses. Your commitment needs to be greater now that you've seen me. Now that you've seen the Son of God, you need an even greater commitment than what they had in the Old Testament. You know, we need a single-minded devotion to God first, in which we don't allow any other love or commitment to come close to our commitment to God. And so Jesus is using these provocative examples because he wants to show us the serious commitment of what it is to follow him. And yet, sadly, in the U.S., this is not often how the gospel is presented. You know, often the gospel is presented as, hey, look, you got a good job, you got a family, you have your life, but what you really need to kind of finish your life off to get the cream and the cherry on top is trust Jesus. You have guilt. You need to get rid of guilt. And so people go, oh, you know what? That's great. I'll add Jesus as another spoke on the wheel of my life in which they stay in the center. And yet Jesus' call is to say, no, he needs to be the hub of the wheel from which all the spokes of life radiate. He can't just be one of the many things in our life. He needs to be the center in which everything else, whether that be family, finances, friends, have their connection and their meaning. Jesus is demanding that He be our first and our all. And to not do that is to not be fit to follow Him, He says. And so following Christ should be seen as a lifelong serious commitment. That's why we should try and avoid any kind of emotional manipulation of people in which we try and get them to make this decision. Well, Jesus is saying here, it's not just the one-time decision. It's a life of following Him. It doesn't matter if you're eager one time and then the rest of your life, you don't want to follow Him. Be committed for the long haul. And yet, it's not just all doom and gloom. There's joy from following Him. The commitment is worth it. You get to know the God of the universe. You're going to be restored into fellowship with Him. Forgiveness of sins. Life from Him. And yet we have to realize these challenges we face. You know, in the 1950s, Bill Jones thought he had the night of his life. He had befriended and interacted with the infamous Hollywood mobster, Mickey Cohen. Mickey had once been the top mob boss in the late 1940s of L.A., but... As was often happened in that era, though the police couldn't catch him on crimes, the IRS was able to catch him on tax evasion. So he spent five years in prison. And then when he came out, Bill Jones, a Christian, was able to get to know Mickey and start building a relationship with him. And on this one night, Bill shared with Mickey Cohen the truth of Christ, the seriousness of sin, the need to follow Christ. And he led Mickey Cohen in a prayer to trust Christ. Bill was ecstatic, and because of Mickey's famous persona and who he was, he was able to get Mickey a special seating in the next Billy Graham crusade 
at Madison Square Garden in New York. They came. They thought Mickey's going to go forward. He's going to make clear to everyone his profession of Christ. But he never went forward. They eventually went back to L.A. and Mickey stopped talking to Bill as much. And finally Bill got another chance to meet with him and Bill was saying, look, Mickey, it seems like you're starting to hang out with your old friends again and you're starting to pursue those old lifestyles and you claim to be a Christian. You can't live that way. And Mickey said to him, Jones, you never told me that I had to give up my career. You never told me that I had to give up my friends. They're Christian movie stars. There's Christian athletes. There's Christian businessmen. So what's the matter with a Christian gangster? If to have to give up all that, if that's Christianity, count me out. And for many of us, we have to ask, are we trying to be a Christian adulterer or a Christian person who's bitter or a Christian person who says, look, God, I'll follow you everywhere, but my finances are mine. I had a one conversation with a man who said, look, I'm willing to do whatever Christ says, but when it gets to the bedroom door, what goes on in there is between me and my wife. God, you can have all of my life except this part. That part is me and you are not getting control. And yet Jesus says, no, I want control of all. You must follow me and forsake all. You know, sadly in the U.S., in a good desire to see many people come to know Christ, we have cheapened the gospel. I don't know if anyone's written better about this than Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he uses this phrase, cheap grace. He writes, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all is grace, because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And so Jesus calls all of us to a costly following of him. Not a costly following in that we got to start working, we better do this, but a realization that the cost of his son, and that we should respond with a whole heart devoted to him. We're completely saved by faith alone. But what is that faith that we're trusting in? It's that he is the Lord of the universe. That he's the one who made us. And that we should follow him. It's not just some generic faith. That yeah I did a couple bad things. And I should have those forgiven. It's that he is Lord. He's risen from the dead. And I want to. I get to follow him. There is no greater following. There is no greater joy. And yet it is a cost. And Jesus bids every one of us to come and follow him. And he offers it freely. You don't need to first clean up your life. You can now turn and say, I renounce my sin. I confess it as sin and seek to follow you by grace alone. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we, each of us, even now, as this morning we may have gone through that cycle of feeling devoted and feeling 
defeated. Lord, may we recommit. May we find your grace sweet. May we follow you no matter the cost. Lord, would you put strength in our steps? Would you encourage our spirits? Would you give us the strength we need? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.